You're listening to an IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education. Powered by UCL Minds. Hello and a very warm welcome from me to this evening's lecture given by Professor Lee Elliott Major with the intriguing title, Apocalypse or New Dawn? Social Mobility in Education in the Post-COVID Era. I'm Professor Sue Rogers, currently Director of the UCL Institute of Education and Chair for this evening's proceedings. As some of you will know, Lee was due to speak at the IOE in March, but unfortunately that got waylaid by the lockdown. How the world has changed since then. So we're really delighted to bring you a fully updated lecture to you now online. In terms of how we'll run the event, we'll hear part one of the lecture from Lee, which will set out the big picture issues and then pause to take a few questions on that. Lee will then talk about what schools can do to help disadvantaged pupils, followed by some more Q&A. We're really keen to hear from you. So throughout, please submit your comments and questions via the YouTube live chat. If you'd like to tweet about the lecture, please do. The Twitter hashtag is IOE Lee Lecture. That now just leaves me to introduce Professor Lee Elliott Major. For many years, Lee has been at the center of efforts to further social mobility through education. Along the way, he has clocked up a few firsts as well as an OBE. The first in his family to attend university, Lee went on to secure a PhD in theoretical physics. After a stint as an education journalist, he moved to the Sutton Trust the UK's leading social mobility foundation as research director and then chief executive. As a founding trustee of the Education Endowment Foundation, he commissioned and co-authored the Sutton Trust EEF Teaching and Learning Toolkit, which has since been replicated around the world. From there, Lee moved to the University of Exeter as Britain's first professor of social mobility. As well as being an honorary professor here at the IOE, he's an associate member of Nuffield College, Oxford, and a senior visiting fellow at the LSE. He's also a school governor. Lee has brought together this impressive record in three co-authored publications, Social Mobility and Its Enemies, published in 2018, What Works in 2019, and Out This Month, What Do We Know and What Should We Do About Social Mobility? In 2019, he was awarded an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours for services to social mobility. Lee, with all that experience at the heart of the debate on social mobility and education, we eagerly await your lecture and the opportunities for questions. Welcome and over to you. Thank you so much, Sue. Uh, that was such a lovely introduction. I'm going to go to the uh, PowerPoint slides now, but well, you won't see me for 15 minutes. You will see the slides, you'll hear my voice. I just want to say thanks for uh, coming into this uh, session. It's a pity we're not in some big lecture theater hearing the hubbub of, 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 of the audience, uh, but perhaps we can, we can come back to that next year. I'm looking forward very much to the discussion, um, but I'm gonna go over now to, to my uh, slides. So I'm hoping this will work. Let's hope the technology works. Okay, so um, 
thank you again very much, Sue, for this. I'm, I'm very proud to be the country's first professor of uh, social mobility. Um, I'm a professor of practice at the Graduate School of Education at the University of Exeter. Uh, so I'm, I'm a professor particularly interested in how we use evidence and research to impact on uh, policy and, and practice. Um, social mobility of, and inequality more broadly, of course, has become an increasing interest, even more so in the COVID era. Um, and, and, and so today, as you mentioned, I'm going to spend the first half really talking about the big picture issue, issues of, of social mobility, many of which, uh, many patterns were, were, which were in train actually before COVID happened. And then the second half, we're going to go to, into more detail about what schools can do for, for disadvantaged um, learners. Uh, it's fitting that I am a professor of social mobility because, as you say, I have my own story of social mobility. I'm the first person in my family to go into higher education. I also lived on my own uh, at 16 and, and I did. I, it is true, I was a bin man, very proud to have been for, for a summer. It's actually when I was a student. I think that story's got bigger as, as the years have gone on. Uh, the biggest thing that people remember from my, my life story tends to be the 1980s haircuts and hats. Uh, that, that's the thing that everyone talks about. But anyway, I just thought it'd be uh, good for you all to know my background given the topic of, of this uh, lecture. Um, as Sue mentioned, there are some wonderful books on this topic, um, uh, and these are three of them. So please do go and get a copy if, if I pique your interest uh, today. Um, one of them is going to get an award soon. I can't say which one, but I'm very excited by that. But anyway, there's further reading uh, from, from those books. So the very term social mobility uh, grates with uh, some people, uh, and this is because it can be interpreted in a very narrow sense as catapulting a few disadvantaged young people from uh, disadvantaged backgrounds into the upper echelons of society, the sort of American dream, if you like, version of social mobility. And the critique of that is that if politicians focus just on that uh, aspect of social mobility, then they avoid the bigger structural inequalities and injustices that we face as a society. There's a couple of things I would say, though, to that argument. Uh, firstly, uh, that social mobility and inequality are actually two sides of the same coin. Uh, if, you, if you want to address social mobility then, as a politician, then you have to address, in my view, uh, inequality as well. So it's not an either or debate. The other thing I would say about it is that social mobility isn't just about, uh, if you like, the American dream. And researchers, we talk about different types of uh, social mobility. And I've used this sort of escalator analogy to try and explain some of these different approaches. So absolute social mobility really shows us how one generation is doing compared to the previous generation in general terms. So how many more people are in higher social class or indeed lower social class categories than the previous one? Or if you're an economist, how many people are better off in real terms? So if you look at this escalator, that would be, in many ways, how fast that escalator is moving up compared to previous generations. It could be also what, what sociologists would call more room at the top, more steps, if you like, on this escalator for people to move up into. 
Now that's very different to the notion of relative social mobility, which really relates to that American dream idea, which is where you sit in the pecking order in society. And that would entail if you moved in relative social mobility terms, if you're moving up, you would overtake someone, if you like, on that escalator. Now, what we want in this country is actually better absolute and relative social mobility. And many people, when I speak to them, say, well, look, we're not particularly interested in upping our sticks and coming to London for a top job. We just want a decent job, a decent life in the community that we live in. So I think these are different notions of social mobility that we have to bear in mind. There is another sort of usage of the term, which mainly in education circles relates to the idea that background shouldn't determine uh, whether you fulfill your educational potential as a, as a, a pupil or, or student. So these are all the different ways that people think about social mobility. The problem for us as a nation is that we are facing a decline. If you like, the dials are all pointing in the wrong direction, however you define social mobility. This is a graph produced by two economists, Joe Blandon and Steve Machen, uh, about the absolute uh, decline in, in, in absolute social mobility. And this graph shows the proportion of people who earn as much or more than, I think it's their father particularly, but their pa parents did at a similar age. And what you see is that after the recession in 2008, we see a quite dramatic decline in the number of people who are earning as much or more than their parents did. And this, I think, we'll see an even bigger decline uh, post-COVID. Uh, in many ways, the millennial generation, the people that are in the, the, the young under 25s, are facing an era of declining opportunity, which sociologists have said is quite unprecedented for, for our country. That poses all sorts of issues. This is a, a separate graph about relative income immobility here. So the higher up the graph, the, the less mobile these countries are. I can tell you maybe Q&A why it's called the Great Gatsby Curve. We haven't got time to go into that right now. But the further to the right of this graph, the more unequal the countries. And it won't be surprising to many of you to see that Great Britain, the UK and the US are in the worst place. They are the least mobile nations and the most unequal. If you like, the gaps between the rungs of the ladder or the steps of the escalator are wider, therefore it's harder to climb. So as I said, those two concepts are really intimately related to each other. We also in this country have a particular stickiness at the extremes of society. This is a graph showing the proportion of people at the top of various professions who were privately educa educated. It's around 50% of people. And of course, private schools make up about 7% of schools. And that over-representation has existed for at least around 50 years, as far as we can, we can tell. So there's a real stickiness at the very top of society, because not many people can access those, those schools. I think more scandalous in many ways are the, is the other side of the spectrum. The, I call them the lost souls. These are the proportion of children leaving school who don't have basic numeracy literacy. Again, we can talk about how we define that, but in many ways, when you look at international comparisons, again, it's us, this is England and the US that compare unfavorably to other countries. I think this is one of the biggest issues, actually, uh, that social mobility we, we have to address. So why could this, why is this so, given how much we invest in public policy and in particular into education? 
And I think one of the issues we have is a misconceptualization of what education can and can't do. And I love this graph. It's a, a picture from an American uh, college from about 100 years ago. Um, it's amazing how, how much this could still be used to this day. And it really uh, summarizes the idea of education as this great social lever. This is a guy who's, um, sorry, I'm saying guy because it's an American. Uh, it's a sort of sliding doors moment. Uh, and if he goes to the college, then he earns more money and becomes increasingly sort of self-satisfied, it seems, in this this picture. Uh, if he doesn't make it into the college, then he earns far less. It's quite a utilitarian view of education, isn't it? And he becomes increasingly morose, it seems. It's interesting to me, actually, because a lot of the literature in social ability says that we have awkward climates, uh, that people that do, in a sense, inverted commas, are successful, make great sacrifices to actually uh, do those sort of, sort of high power jobs. Anyway, very, very interesting views on that. The issue is, um, is that all the evidence shows that education can only do so much. It can be, of course, transformative and teachers all, all, in all walks, uh, all schools uh, are, are always doing amazing uh, things with many, many of our pupils. But, and here's the big but, a lot of the outcomes, particularly achievement outcomes of children, are shaped by the factors outside schools. Um, one study uh, called it this the 80-20 rule. 80% of the variation in children outcomes happens or occurs within schools and about 20% between them. So a lot is happening outside over which teachers have no control over. And I've just listed here that the factors that many studies, I just looked at many studies that I've seen over the years and, and, and listed all the things that advantaged uh, people use uh, to get ahead in life. Um, and I won't go through all of them, but there are a lot. And the point here is that outside factors are fundamental to outcomes and that schools can only do so much. I think we also, and we'll come to this in the second half of the lecture, I think we underestimate how many children fall at that first hurdle, the basic welfare hurdle. And we've seen a lot of that, of course, uh, during COVID. So one of the things that's happened outside schools over the last 15 years, uh, 20 years or so, is this booming private tutoring. And this is an example of what we've called in one of our books, the great sort of escalating arms race of education. And this is fueled mainly by middle class parents. Around 25% of 11 to 16 year olds across the country have had some form of private tutoring at some point in their lives. Um, so again, this is something that teachers have no control over. And in, indeed, national education policies, we sort of ignore the very things that are happening outside uh, the school gates when we're measuring the impact that is the success uh, of schools. I got my son to draw an image. He's an A-level art student of uh, what he thought the expectations were on, on teachers. And this is what he came up with. I'm very proud of this. And, and I think it's very telling when you look at how much a pupil considers that schools are now expected to, to address. So we've, we're all conscious of the, the, the food parcels being delivered during COVID, but it seems to me that schools are increasingly uh, responsible or being seen to be responsible for all these other things as well. Again, we'll come back to this issue. So during the early stages of the pandemic, there was uh, comments about COVID-19 being the great equaliser. Um, what we know from the evidence, and this is uh, research that I'm uh, involved in right at the moment, it has been a great 
differentiator. And um, so, for example, we know that private school pupils have been six times more likely than state school pupils to have four or more live online lessons daily during partial school shutdowns uh, during the early stages of COVID. We also know, again, that there is a significant gap in, in paid private tutoring during the times that uh, over recent months. There's also, of course, been huge divides and gaps emerging in employment, of course, the parents of many of the pupils. So the two factors that drive future social mobility are moving in, in the wrong direction. So this is the sort of final slide I just want to end with uh, 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 on this first section. And many of the issues that I have been discussing, I think, relate to the very sort of promise at the heart of capitalist society, which is that we should all have a chance to do better in our lives. And there's a sort of fairness test, I think, at the heart of this. So this image is a sort of unequal playing field. It probably should be an empty stadium, shouldn't it, at the moment, given uh, where we are. Um, but I, I think we're, we're sort of failing the basic fairness test at the heart of society in that we are not giving disadvantaged young people a fair chance uh, to just have a decent life, let alone climb the social ladder. I think there's a number of things that we could do to address this, and I'm not going to go through these in detail because uh, I'm going to leave uh, these open to question and answers, but I do think it's time for us to consider a wealth tax to help uh, recover from COVID. It would be a very small dent in, in the wealthy elites in this country. We want fairer jobs in terms of not just pay, but conditions, fair measures for schools and universities. I think establishing a vocational stream in schools so we don't have a one-size-fits-all academic uh, race. Uh, fair admissions, I think, lower offers for young people who have suffered, particularly during COVID, so that they have lower grade offers at universities. And finally, uh, fair funding. Uh, so further education colleges, I would argue, need far more funding than they do at the moment. They, they, they cater for many of our disadvantaged young uh, people. The one thing that social mobility teaches us is that if we don't address these issues, and I think COVID does provide us with an opportunity to, to think more radically, but if we don't do that, we will store up bigger problems for future generations. So thank you very much. I'm going to end here and then we're going to open it to Q&A. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lee. Um, that was thought provoking to get us started. And I've got quite a few questions here. And I've just been having a look to see if there are any themes. I mean, it does seem to be around the kind of COVID context and the um, what we know about uh, how COVID has exacerbated inequality and disadvantage um, in, in our community. So I'll try and pull out a couple of uh, big picture ones at this stage. Um, and so here's a really big one for you to start you off. Um, is our current model of education still relevant post-COVID or does this need to change? If yes, what areas and how does this need to change? Wow, great question. Um, so in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, the model, I, I do, I do, you know, I mentioned establishing a vocational uh, stream in education. I do think that's something that we needed to think about even before COVID happened. Um, I, I worry about this sort of um, uh, academic uh, race that we've, we've become obsessed with where there are uh, every year actually we, we program hardwired into our system a proportion of children that lose that academic race that are deemed as failures. So I 
personally believe that we should establish a vocational uh, sort of stream, if you like, from, from age 14, possibly. Um, again, I know there's lots of debates about whether that would, um, would mean that only poorer children would choose that stream. But I would, what I would argue is the current system is, is not working uh, for, for, all, for all children, certainly for social mobility. Um, if, if you're thinking more about sort of whether, you know, we're now moving to blended learning, uh, you know, a sort of world where it's not just face to face, it's, it's online as well as face to face. I think it's early days on that. Um, my my worry, and we're going to come back to this in the second half. My worry with um, with with with, on, with online and is that actually many of our most disadvantaged learners do uh, benefit from actual face-to-face -face teaching. Um, so I certainly think it's going to change, uh, but I think we'll come back to this in the second half. I think it's about quality uh, teaching and learning through online uh, provision, but we'll come back to that. Yeah, I, I wanted just to push you a little bit on that, just to give your view briefly about uh, the Prime Minister and vocational education, as you know, He's been talking about this this very week and how much of a reality that's likely to be. And of course, we've known this for a long time and it seems to match uh, what you've uh, said about the, the race to, to, to be academic and academic achievement. Um, is it going to happen, do you think? Is, it, is this the time? I hope so. You know, I actually welcome that announcement. Um, I haven't looked at the details, to be honest with you. you know, is, is there genuine extra funding? I know there's some questions around that. I believe that we should have equal uh, support for those that don't go to university as, as much as those that do go to university. And our system is still, in my view, geared towards those that go to university. And, and then, listen, we can have debates about access to university and, and I'm very happy to do that. And I think universities could do far more in terms of that. But in many ways, from a broader social mobility perspective, I think it's about giving people uh, support to do training in work and to have second chances uh, when they're you know mature learners. So I, I do support the government's general direction on that. I have to say uh, the proof will be in the pudding, of course. But yeah, no, as, as a general direction, I would welcome that. Thanks. And I've got a question here now from Lucy Bishop. And Lucy asks, to what extent do the assumptions and bias of the successfully educated teacher impinge on their understanding of the needs of the communities they teach? Interesting question. Wow, I think I feel like I'm doing a viva here. These are really good <laughs> questions. These are really good questions. Um, it's a really sensitive area, this. And, 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 and again, I'm going to come back to it a little bit in the second half. Um, you know, there have been attempts to um, to help teachers understand poverty um, uh, better. Uh, and it's one of the issues I think we, do, we all face um, in, in many of us who want to improve social mobility. Because we live in such a fractured society, many of us don't know what the real experiences are of profound poverty. You know, we, we just don't because we tend to be, uh, you know, I, I was the first person to go to university, but I am now a middle class person who, you know, is trying to, to improve society. Um, but, but, you know, like many teachers, I think sometimes many of us academics uh, lose sight of, of the actual, you know, how, how poor uh, some, some people are. I'm going to come back to this in the second half. So um, I, I, do, I do think there's something in that. Um, 
some of the programs I've seen that try to address that and teach teachers about the context children come from have been quite controversial, can be quite patronising about those different contexts. So I think you have to be very careful. But but yes, no, I think I think we 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 need to understand better uh, the perspectives of people from from different backgrounds. And by the way, I think also that is something you see in the social mobility debates is that we expect everyone to think of success in the same ways as the middle classes do and this is one of the sort of um yeah, taboos in the debate you know it might be actually that many young people are rejecting the school system because it's a, a rigged race you know that only the middle classes can win and actually they might see success in other terms which again might be around staying in my community getting a decent job and a decent life now I, again i have to be careful not to be patronizing about that but i think these are really interesting debates about how we perceive uh, success. You know, this isn't about everyone becoming necessarily middle class, right? That's not necessarily the aim here. Thanks, Lee. And I mean, you've talked about the race several times in different ways uh, so far. And there is a, qu a question here, uh, no name, unfortunately, but uh, how can equality of opportunity be assured through the, the race for ever decreasing resources and opportunities? Um, yeah, it's a big challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's a great question again. Um, depends how we define opportunities and success here. I, you know, we do, we are going into an era where there will be more downward mobility than upward mobility. You know, that's that's something that's unprecedented in many ways. Um, so I do think there are enough opportunities to go around. It's just how it, you know, it comes back to inequality of condition as well as inequality of, of, of opportunity. Uh, but certainly, you know, um, it's going to be tougher for everyone, actually, in terms of just measuring ourselves against where our parents were. You know, for the first time, we're going to be earning less uh, in many ways. Well, when I say we, it's particularly the younger generations. Um, and, you know, I do, you know, there's there's a lot of, you know, I, I call this apocalypse uh, versus new dawn. You know, a lot of apocalyptic visions centre on sort of deadly viruses, obviously very relevant now, or environmental catastrophe. I honestly do think that the younger generations will rise up if we don't address some of these fundamental issues in society and you do have to address fairness and inequality as well as social mobility you know will will the youngsters rise up if they've got nothing else to lose i mean you know may, may it sounds fanciful but i do wonder whether that will be uh, the case at some point yeah really interesting i think we, we hugely underestimate young people and their ability to be um, activists and to participate and uh yeah, um, uh, good points there, uh, Lee. So I've got another question here about um, yeah. Let's go. Let's go to this one. Um, how best can schools support children post lockdown as the divide has grown, as many state school students have suffered from the digital divide and have lost learning and have not had access to resources and laptops. So, you know, I know there are government attempts to address uh, these issues. You know, the digital divide in many ways part of wider inequality, isn't it? So uh, you would want uh, ultimately 
to have uh, online provision for everyone. Um, yeah, this is something I hope will come out of this crisis. Actually, is 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 more equality in terms of of that. Um, it's not just that, of course. It comes back to that previous question about. Um, what sort of poverty means in 21st century Britain. You know, many young people will be in cramped conditions that are not conducive to learning. Um, I really worry about the learning losses that have been uh, suffered over the last year. And I worry particularly the cohort, it's not just because my children are part of this cohort, by the way, but the children who are doing GCSEs and A-levels coming up, um, because they are the ones that have been hit uh, most by this and, and, and how we treat those in terms of both their academic development but also their well-being I think it's going to be absolutely critical this this is increasingly we're, we're realizing I think will have a generational uh, impact but certainly the digital divide is something I think we will have to address it seems to me both from a university and a school perspective that online learning is going to be here to stay Again, we'll come back to that in the second half because I think it has to be quality, though. It has to be good quality uh, teaching and learning. Thanks. And you, you mentioned uh, private tutoring in your um, slides and we've come now to, to learning loss. Um, so we have a question here about the National Tutoring Programme, in fact, um, and what that might offer and what barriers are going to prove too difficult for this and other initiatives in the future? That's another good question. Yeah, another good question. I mean, I, I as, as many of you will know, as one of the, the, the many people that were championing this idea of a national tutoring service. And the reasons for that were, 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 were well, one, we know that one-to-one -one tutoring works um, uh, if actually delivered by a high quality tutor or, or teacher. Um, uh, and and it, it seemed to me a good idea to help schools, um, given the, the huge uh, challenges they, they face. What I'm hearing on the ground from many teachers in many schools is that they're, they're struggling partly because it, it hasn't happened. And I think the government are doing their best on this, to be fair. Um, but, you know, the, the thing that I'm concerned about with it um, is, is just maintaining that quality, because what you don't want to do is to rush to scale up some sort of tutoring help but that that's compromised on quality um, I would rather invest money into quality teaching that, that, than do that so you know um, for me it will hopefully become part of the system uh, you know that we have this national I, I was imagining a sort of national volunteering service where undergraduates could volunteer you know I was, I was hoping that we'd tap into that sort of spirit of giving back um, to, 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 to people to help. Um, but it's early days yet. I, I think, you know, what I would say is we shouldn't rush that programme, even though I know uh, that there are so many demands on the system because you don't want to compromise on quality. Thanks. And I think we've got time for one or two more questions before we move into the second part of your lecture. Um, there's an interesting one here about extracurricular opportunities. And I suppose for me, I would also include some of the kind of non-core subjects and the kind of wider educational experience that we want all of our children to have to become creative, critical thinkers and to be able to participate in society fully. Um, so the question is, extracurricular opportunities are often limited for students from lower income backgrounds. How can we um, ensure that they can have these experiences and be encouraged to have this uh, extracurricular 
um, opportunity? That's a really good question. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I'd come back to how schools are measured with this. And you know, I do think this is a question for national policy. How is success measured? We, we all know, don't we, that schools are much more than just academic progress or, or grades. And yet the metrics we use would force us to measure schools in that way. I think unless we resolve that issue, it's going to be very difficult for schools to give the right amount of space for extracurricular activities. In the What Works book uh, that I did with Steve Higgins, we purposely looked at this area, um, for example, for, for art and sports and other, uh, other areas. And, and the, the argument there was that these are good in, in of themselves. They are good for self-esteem, for confidence, for all sorts of things. And I think we have um, a very narrow uh, sort of curriculum at the moment. Um, the, the, the thing that, that in education I've realised as a professor as well as in schools is we are governed by the metrics, you know, uh, and, and if we're measured in a certain way, then it, that, that really drives behaviour. So I feel like we need a conversation partly actually goes back to what I was saying about out of school factors that, that puts into context what schools can achieve, but also broadens the metrics to include those things that matter over and above uh, achievement. Thanks. And I, I, we're getting quite a lot of uh, questions from teachers, actually, who really want to know what they can do. So I think I'm going to hold those over and um, I, I'll give you just the next minute or so to get up your, your next slides and we'll move into part two of the lecture. Uh, so thanks, Lee. Um, over to you. Thank you very much. The Bananarama principle, um, I think, is one of the most important principles in education. It ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. Uh, it's important because the delivery of any approach or uh, strategy in schools, in fact, in life in general, is as much or as important, at least, as the content of that uh, program. The principle was conceived by my uh, great friend, uh, Steve Higgins, when we produced uh, the, the, the Pupil Premium uh, toolkit nearly 10 years ago now and that toolkit was this uh, as Sue mentioned earlier on a, a summary of best bets for improving the attainment of uh, underprivileged or poor children um, and uh, that was based on, on thousands of, uh, of studies. It is now of course evolved and developed into the wonderful Education of Doubt Foundation toolkit which is uh, freely available on um, the website and used by hundreds of thousands of schools. The thing that got kind of got lost in the way, though, along the way, was the Bananarama principle, which is a really important part of what we were trying um, to say. And uh, one of the examples of this is when, when I don't know if some of you will remember, when we produced that first toolkit, one of the headlines was that teaching assistants had, on average, zero impact on attainment of uh, children. Um, now, I always remember this because the Treasury at the time got in touch and basically were asking, well, should we just get rid of the budget for TAs if this is the case? And we were saying, no, no, please. That's not what we meant. It's the unintended consequences of research summaries. Um, but the point was that there were many teaching assistants who were delivering really good activity as secondary educators in classroom who had been well trained and were well managed by teachers. But that for every one of those, there was someone who wasn't being trained or managed very well, who was actually having a negative impact 
on pupils. And so if you looked at the average, uh, it, it was um, uh, zero. So the point here was not whether you had TAs or not, it was how you deployed uh, those people in, uh, in your classrooms. I think this is an important concept because uh, it, it really, um, for me, says that we can't ultimately boil down classroom activity to a simple scientific formula. There is always going to be room for human impact at a certain time and certain place in a classroom. And I think that is a good thing, actually, as a profession, that, we, that, 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 that is the case. It also relates to the limitations of evidence. You know, I've been part, I'm very proud of the part of the sort of evidence-informed movement to enable teachers to use evidence in the classroom more than ever before. But there are limits to that, and we're seeing this in many of the sort of scale-up problems that we, we observe in many of the trials in, in, in education, where you have a thing that works, an approach that works for one school, perhaps, when they get all the support from the researchers doing that. But as soon as you scale up to hundreds of schools, you see the impact diminish quite radically. I think that comes down again to Bananarama. Um, for me, the most important thing about this, the most important point about Bananarama is that we grossly, systematically underestimate the amount of time needed for teachers to develop their professional practice, whether that's taking on a new approach or whether that's just develop classroom practice more generally. I think that is a real flaw in all our policies and it's one of the reasons why we see trials not producing as much impact as, as, as they could do. Um, now, I used to play uh, the music at these presentations, but I won't be able to today. But I want you to sort of think about that tune uh, uh, while you're, you're looking at this overview graph of um, what works or what has worked, uh, really, we should say in the classroom. So this is an overview and it came originally from a talk that this really summarizes uh, the, the chapters in our What Works book. Um, and, and the higher up you go on this graph, the, the bigger the effect size in months gain over an academic year you see for an approach if, and that's the big if, if delivered uh, well, and the further to the right, it is the cost of so the more costly the approach um, that, that we see. Um, I think the, the, the first thing I would say about this is, is it probably won't surprise many of the people in on, on, on this lecture in that what really matters in terms of progress in learning is around classroom feedback and uh, teaching. That's where it's at. It might seem obvious, but honestly, we spend so much of our time in education policy debates avoiding that essential uh, truth in education. I won't be able to go through all these buckets, but very happy to answer questions um, about them. So we summarise the evidence for, for each of these areas. I just want to say a little bit, I want to come back to classroom feedback because it's the one thing that, that I think we can focus on that can help disadvantaged learners. So I'm going to spend a bit of time on that in a, in a bit. But just on homework and technology, homework is an inherently risky strategy uh, in terms of this is pre-COVID uh, in that, um, you know, it, we don't know what circumstances children are working under in, in the home. 
and parents often help them by the way there's a lot of cheating that goes on homework we also know there's a law of diminishing returns an american expert suggested there should be a 10-minute rule for every year group you go up in education there should be 10, at most 10 minutes of homework a night so by the time you get sixth form it should be around two hours at most we exceed that by far already in terms of technology, the thing, the headline that always comes back whenever we do any reviews on the use of technology, whether it be online, whether it be computers, whatever, is that think about the teaching and learning first. I, I, I meet so many teachers who get so excited about new technology, but you really have to think what are the learning and teaching gains first and how can technology enable us to, 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 to do that? I mentioned those two things because, of course, we've seen huge amounts of remote learning over the last uh, six months and often under incredibly difficult circumstances, uh, having to produce things very quickly. But I've seen um, more variation in that in terms of quality than I think I've seen anything uh, in education. And at one extreme, I, do, I have to say I have seen poor practice that really isn't doing much in terms of learning in diagnosing where children are in their learning or giving appropriate feedback at the right time it's more sort of bombardment of sort of uh, subject content uh, almost anti-learning uh, i would i would i would use that word in, in some cases on the other side of the spectrum there has been the most innovative entrepreneurial um, uh, uses of remote learning that uh, do involve peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, feedback and, and mentoring that do uh, diagnose where, where children are in, in their learning. We'll come back to that a bit more when I talk about feedback. But I just wanted to mention that because I think one of the things we will need to do as a sector is to review um, the, 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 the how well we've done with remote learning and find out where the best practice is because I think there's been this huge uh, uh, variation. Um, uh, those arrows were just to try and explain to you this 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 sort of banana or principle. So for each of these boxes, uh, there will be a variation in, in the effect size according to how well uh, it's delivered. I'd love to talk to you about all these other stuff, but um, perhaps we can come back if there are any uh, questions. Uh, so those those are some of the headlines. Again, ability setting. Uh, uh, ability in inverted commas it should be there um that's one i'd love to talk to you all about i, I think the, the key uh, evidence there uh, is that it's what you do with the children after they've been organized that matters again it comes back to the quality of teaching uh, but both differentiated uh, uh, so mixed ability classes can do well and as well as differentiated classes it really is it comes about how you do it again that matters um Anyway, just coming on to the, the, another one of the boxes that I think we were, I alluded to in the first half of, of the lecture, uh, the thing that I'm observing, of course, in, in schools up and down the country is they are doing increasing amounts of what I would classify as social welfare. Um, and this is, you know, not just providing free breakfast. There were some examples where well, someone they bought a washing machine for someone uh, with, with some of the pupil premium uh, money they had. Um, I, th I think there's some interesting debates we need to have about this. One is, if schools are going to do all this, then I think they need the resources to do them properly. And we should try as a schooling, as a school, certainly, to have a strategy for this, for how much we can do. In, in many ways, it, it's sort of a, a trying to... A, 
address some of those 80% of factors that come from outside school. So it, it kind of is understandable in many ways, but I think what you have to be so careful of is that you don't compromise your work in terms of core teaching and learning. Because as I said before, I think we underestimate how much time that takes. The problem is, for me, is that there's no one else picking up the pieces in many ways, and that it's schools that have it, are having to deal with this. I think we do need a discussion uh, about that. So finally, I just want to talk about uh, what I've called here feedback for inclusive learning. Uh, you know, when people ask me what is the one thing uh, you could do to narrow uh, the attainment or, or progress gaps, I think this would be it. This would be my best bet after many years of looking at this. It, it comes up very highly in, in toolkits. It's, it's, uh, the early estimations about eight months extra uh, learning over an academic year. I think that that's going to come down as, as we do more trials that are more realistic. This, this is really about um, how we uh, judge uh, the learning, where, where pupils are in their learning, and then adapt our teaching to move them on in, in, in their, their learning. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? But one of the fundamental challenges at the heart of education is that most schools have classes of 30 pupils. So for a teacher, um, you are having to think about this for 30 different uh, pupils at one time on the go. And I think it's one of the biggest challenges, but it's one of the areas where I feel we can um, improve uh, progress. I've just defined feedback here. Um, I won't. I won't go over over the words uh, again. Uh, but the thing I would say is that this is a dual process. Okay, this is about as much as the pupils, the learners, the students, as it is the teacher. And I think we often lose sight of that. There's not enough of that that goes on. Um, the other thing I would say about this, this is about different levels of feedback. Most studies show that most feedback in the classroom is task orientated. It's whether a pupil has that as correct or incorrect what we really want is more feedback around the strategies for learning or indeed how they are regulating themselves as learners so um, so really feedback is aiming to create independent learners in in the classroom the problem is the challenge we have and and this is from the great uh, graham nuttall research 40 years of, of videoing videoing and and, and taping uh, the, the activities in the classroom um, it's one of the great pieces of, of education work um, what what nuttall teaches us is that these that the, the, the classrooms in many ways are very inefficient learning uh, environments about 40 to 50% of what teachers teach um, children already know. About 80% of the feedback they receive is actually from other pupils, and 80% of that is wrong, according to Nuttall. Um, and the one that really gets teachers talking whenever I do sessions with them, yes, 80% of pupils' time is spent pretending to listen. I'm wondering how many of you are doing that right now. Online, it's even harder to know that. Um, the point, uh, the challenges of uh, this slide, um, really, for me, uh, more than any other, uh, just show how challenging feedback is. Many people talk about it, uh, but for me, there are so many gains that could be had if we did it correctly. 
as, as someone who also lectures and teaches as well, I, I really um, uh, sort of associate this as well, or relate to this issue in that I think when you observe many classrooms, what you tend to see is teachers focusing on those pupils who are on the sort of crest of the learning wave, I call it. So they're the ones putting the hand up they're on top of the curriculum. They're getting all the, the information. And it's a very enjoyable thing when you're interacting with those uh, pupils we often lose sight of those that are lost at sea, that are nodding their heads, uh, but are increasingly um, uh, missing the learning. And, and it's, it's really thinking about that in the classroom. I think it's probably more important than any of the interventions that we, we think about. Now, I've, I've listed here, and we can share the slides afterwards, all the, the ways that we can get feedback wrong. Um, and also, um, all of the practical advice out there, actually, um, of people getting it right. And that's the thing uh, out there. There's no secret uh, to this. I think there's some really good ways of enabling teachers to do this in, in, in busy classrooms. Um, I think there's some general principles here. Um, first for me is that I believe we should carve out much more time for feedback sessions. Um, in many ways, it depends how you define what teaching is, but I would say less teaching and more feedback even. Um, I do think it's that that important. Uh, I've spoken about pupils. I don't think we involve them as much in empowering them as uh, agents of feedback uh, as well. I think this really requires teaching, uh, the ch changing the mindset of teaching. It really does uh, come down to that. Um, my question is also, what? how do you make this happen? What's the professional learning approach? I really like uh, Dylan Williams' recent um, uh, trial, which involved teacher learning communities, because it also it looked at formative assessment, effective feedback, but it also gave us a way, a practical way of actually enacting that. And I'm working with teachers at the moment on, 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 a, on a similar idea, a sort of research practitioner uh, project. So again, I've covered a lot in this session, um, uh, but these are, are the summaries, uh, the summary for, for you. Uh, but one of my messages, as I said, is, is please uh, focus on, on feedback. That's what I would urge you uh, to think about. Now, if none of this motivates you, and, I, and I'm sure many of you are motivated by this, um, one of the things, and it comes back to one of those early questions I just wanted to end on, uh, was that I do worry that because we've become a more fragmented society and because of the lack of social mobility, we are increasingly becoming poverty blind. And I see these in this in public debates about inequality and social mobility. But just these are these are I, I got a number of statistics from a number of different charities that pursue these different issues. And it's deeply shocking. It's deeply shocking to me that 400,000 children do not have a bed to sleep in. And, you know, 1.7 million do not have sufficient food to make up a healthy diet. Um, I, I looked up uh, Charles Dickens' quote on, on this, and Dickens was himself a school reformer, and he observed um, uh, young, young people, and he, and he was saying, and his observation was they came from untaught uh, parents, and they were going to create future untaught generations. He was, in other words, again, talking about social mobility, the lack of, of it thereof. And I don't think, in many ways, we've moved away from the challenges that the Victorians were facing in terms of some of these issues. Um, and on that note, I'll uh, finish again. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Lee, for that thought-provoking second part um, of your lecture. And um, I'm sure it's going to generate lots of questions. I've got quite a few in front of me, but there's still opportunity to put some um, onto the YouTube chat um, 
we'd love to hear from you. So keep them coming. I mean, it's interesting, the nuttle slide you put up. I certainly spent um, a great deal of time pretending to listen in my secondary education. Um, and I suppose reflecting on that and going back to you as a kind of bin man to professor, um, uh, it, you, you know, it, that human interaction, that pedagogic interaction and engagement through uh, that, that sort of learning moment, I guess, that you've outlined in terms of feedback and how that can work is the powerful place and is the thing that can make such a big difference. Certainly to me, uh, uh, if I'd had more of that in my secondary education, I might have got on a bit more speedily than I did. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, so, so fascinating. So I hope that we can hang on to some of that. We're in a pretty disconnected world at the moment. And schools, of course, are having to cope with um, a, a different kind of pedagogic environment to some extent with the kind of COVID uh, restrictions and then the, the possibility um, of, of further lockdowns in the future. So I do think we need to consider that context when we're um, working through the questions as well and thinking about feedback. What might that look like? Um, OK, so without further ado, I'll pull up a question that came through from a teacher. And um, the question is, I mean, it, it links into a lot of what you've said already, but as a teacher, I would like to know what I can really, and really is underlined here, what I can really do to help within the financial and time constraints that we all face. And I guess COVID has made that even more challenging. So it's, it's you know, really practically what can I do to, to help those children who are lost at sea? So I, I think it's hard uh, under the budget constraints and the time constraints we all have. And I do worry about the well-being of teachers, by the way. I, I really worry uh, about that a lot at the moment. Um, but for me, I think there are some things as a school you can think about in terms of uh, the, the social welfare aspect that, that I've mentioned. Um, I mean, I know many schools now provide um, uh, free breakfast, you know, at primary schools particularly. And, and, and I can sort of understand that approach because partly it gets children in on time, uh, but partly it also uh, has evidence that it, it can lead to uh, better progress for all children because you get, get less disruption in, in the class. It's very interesting. Um, some of these sort of uh, things that we, we can do have, have huge impact. I, for me, though, I think you have to be careful, and I think it's probably a... Um, a discussion within the school is okay what are we going to do in this space you know uh, because there is so much you can do um, so, so I think it's to be strategic about that um, and relating to that because you've only got so much time I, I would think about uh, professional um, learning focused on my, obs on my obsession on, on how to improve effective feedback um, again I can provide some resources of, of schools and teachers that have done amazing things and have practical tips on this um, it would be the one area I, I think give yourself time to do that though you know these things do take time to embed in into practice it's one of the ironies of, of teaching that we are very poor and I count myself in this we're very poor at professional learning you know it's one of the great ironies of the system and and that's partly driven by this um, this idea that we can do everything quickly, I think, and um, that we don't give enough room for professional development. I, you know, I look at other countries where where they do more time on professional learning and less time in, in front of the classroom. It's, it's quite interesting. Uh, it, it, for me, it's quality rather than quantity. So uh, if you really push me, 
I would I would focus on, you know, and I am, you know, I am an advocate of, of extra support one to one tutoring because we know that uh, improves, um, uh, can improve children, but it has to be done, uh, you know, in the right way in, in terms of a high quality uh, tutor or, or, or teacher. But that would be my my view. Thanks, Lee. It completely endorsed the professional learning point. But let's face it, some of the professional learning opportunities out there are very poor quality as well. And we don't have a way of quality assuring them uh, as well as we might in, in the sector. Um, and much more needs to be invested in that if we're going to uh, get to the heart of this. So I wonder if you've got any thoughts on, on that, since it is so important in, in the social mobility uh, work you're doing. Yes, one thing I'm exploring um... With some teachers in Bristol at the moment, actually, funny enough, is is a um, a research a researcher practitioner partnership, I, 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 and and this is to look at feedback, of course, um, and I think that's very much an equal partnership because you know I can bring along some of the summaries from what we know from research, but I think it's really important that it fits the context for the teachers that you're working with. Um, so I, I do. I'm. I'm. I, you know, we do need to improve. I. I, I agree, agree, Sue. But I do. I do wonder whether, as a profession, uh, we need to grab hold of this ourselves. I don't think anyone, anyone else is going to do it for us. I do think we probably need stronger links between research and practitioners. Uh, we've made some headway on that. I think over the last ten years, um, we could do far more. I think over the, over the next uh, ten. So I'm. I'm optimistic. Uh, maybe ask me in ten years. But I. I, I sort of. I feel like there's. There's lots. Of going on it's just how you do that at scale I guess is always the, the challenge indeed and I, I think uh, we know that uh, uh, there is some evidence isn't there that the kind of interactive work that you've described in the classroom for, for teachers but with research evidence and using that in in ways and applicability in their particular settings we know that's uh, effective but it's hugely uh, resource hungry as well and uh, requires a commitment over time uh, yeah. to make it effective. So I think that's another big challenge. But yes, agree, this needs to be a sector-led and some serious investment in professional learning would, I think, make a huge difference. Um, okay, moving on then, I'm going to go now to um, Stephen Spencer, who's sent a question through on YouTube. Um, uh, his question is, how realistic in an academy setting do you think it is to change feedback practice for individual teachers? Hmm, interesting. Um, I, I'm just trying to sort of. Um, I'm not sure the, what's what's that. What, read between the lines okay. there. Um, well, you know, I, I would hope that any group uh, of academies uh, would see this as a priority, um, and that professional learning, and indeed any school group of schools that really understand the evidence, would prioritise. Um, uh, effective feedback in the classroom because we know that if you get it right, that it has huge um uh, benefits for the children so um yeah i would hope it isn't constrained by um by being that though that some uh, i don't know being too directive that in controlling over what teachers can do um but yeah no that would be my, my hope uh, and and i do speak with many um academy chains uh, about these these issues so I, I certainly think there are there probably is a range of, of practice i imagine across the system but yeah i would hope any school uh, would be thinking about uh, these issues. The key for me is, is all comes back to banana rama. It's it's, it's it's implementation. You know, you can read the theory on on these things a lot, but you do need time. Uh, and 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 I hope that that 
uh, would 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 happen in 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 many of these um, uh, multi academy trusts. In, indeed, you know, you could argue in an ideal world that those, if you have a, 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 a group of schools, then you can provide feedback to each other. Uh, and I'm a really big fan of the sort of school to school um, uh, programs where you see schools giving each other formative uh, feedback and, and, and observation. I think that can work well. Thanks. And we've had a question in about toolkits and uh, professional development. So I'll just take that one now, given that we were talking about professional learning. And the question is, is there a danger that things like best practice toolkits turn teachers into technicians, further undermining more fundamental professional development and teachers' confidence to apply their own judgment? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And for me, Banana Rama is, is speaks to all this because <laughs> it's, um, you know, what, what that teaches us is that no approach is perfect. You know, it depends how you deliver this, how you approach the, the strategy or whatever you're trying to do. Uh, it was really interesting, the trials of peer tutoring that the EF did a few years back. So peer tutoring is where particularly powerful in primary schools where you get um, uh, older students, uh, pupils teaching um, in maths or English, um, their, their peers overseen by, by a teacher. And when we um, tried to scale up that approach, it was really interesting. And many of the teachers um, said that it was too prescriptive, actually, the program that we tried to try. Yeah, it, it was, it, you, you had to tick the boxes and, um, and others, basically said they didn't have the time to do it. So, and, and the trials weren't as successful as we, we hoped. And I think it's a real balancing act here to give teachers some basics, recipes of what the evidence suggests, but then for them to shape that in their own context. I think that's absolutely crucial. And one of the things I worry a little bit with the, the evidence-based, well, I would call it evidence-informed, by the way. I think those words are really important. I, I worry when people start talking about evidence-based education you know i think evidence can only take you so far um and then i do worry that you then get used in the wrong hands um, by governments say to tell teachers what to do i think it can inform you and empower you as a professional um but yeah the problem that the thing with talk is that's why i started off with the banana on principle um was that without those context uh, that, that that you know when i used to present the toolkit to groups of teachers we used to discuss banana rama and the different experiences of teachers in different schools and I think without that context, toolkits can be dangerous. I agree. Uh, in the wrong hands, they can be used uh, to control teachers rather than empower them. Thanks for that. I and mean, we've kind of segued into the kind of politics around this, actually. And so I, I have a couple of questions uh, about that. And the first one is, um, I, I think this is also referring to the AT20 uh, rule that you mentioned. Given that schools and education can only do so much to further social mobility, how can we get politicians to pay more attention to that fact? It's quite a challenging one. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. And um, what's been, I'm the eternal optimist, what's been promising, I think, is that I gather anyway, um, let's see whether this uh, goes, goes into something that, that really does happen. But that the, the wealth tax idea that I and others have been proposing hasn't been rejected outright by the current uh, government. And, um, and, and that's interesting. You know, we have 
a government and i'm not you know we we can talk about how how well managed this pandemic has been but certainly in terms of how interventionist this um right of center government has been it's been quite incredible actually in terms of, of the support for for people in, in the for, through furloughing etc so you know i would hope that those in government would be able enough to consider some of the evidence that me and others provide and to consider whether it is actually time that we had something like a wealth tax. Many of the um, issues, it's not just about tax, I think that we do need a debate. It's, it comes back to fairness for me again. It's not just fairness in education, it's fairness in the workplace. We have millions of people, many young people who are employed on contracts that are deeply unjust, that do not have basic entitlements as well as a minimum wage. And, and for me, if you're serious about social media, you would, you would address those issues as well. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right. And, and I do worry um, that we focus too much again on education because it's the one thing that, that, that we, 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 we all hope could transform lives. But unless, yeah, the evidence for me is pretty clear on this. And it's great evidence from Finland on this that education reforms to create a more comprehensive schooling um, system led to an, a, an increase in social mobility in Finland. But it was in a context of more equality. I think if you don't address both those things, uh, then you will not have a socially mobile society. Thanks, Lee. And the questions are coming in thick and fast now. So I'm going to try and get through as many as we can in the time that remains. And we have one from Jamie Bettles, uh, again through YouTube. Um, what are your thoughts on universal basic income and its potential impact on social mobility? So there's lots of uh, debates about um, basic income, and we cover some of that in our, our latest uh, book. Um, I do have some sympathy with some of the arguments around providing enough help for for people um, in, in so, so they don't. Yeah, one one of the issues that I worry about with with COVID is long term unemployment. Um, you know, because we know that from the eight nineteen eighties, our experiences of the long term scarring that that created. My belief is that it's less costly to help people up front now and i would create jobs particularly outside london um i'd create jobs in things that that contribute to society so i know i'm getting very idealistic here but to the environment and to education um, and i would yes i would pay for those up front because i think the costs the long-term cost to us of unemployment over the long term are huge. So you invest now to, 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 to for, for a better future. I, I know politically it's difficult, but um, yes, I, I have some sympathy with those arguments. I think for me, it's probably more around providing support for jobs that also include training, um, you know, training that everyone is entitled to. Um, but anyway, yes, so I have some sympathy for those sort of arguments. Thanks very much. Okay, and sticking with that, um, let's see what we've got coming in. Ah, here's a, 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 an interesting question. Uh, should we bring private schools into the state system and discontinue grammar schools? I always get asked this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's a difficult one, this, because, you know, as, as a pragmatist and a realist, um, you know, some people say, should we abolish private schools? For me, it really rests on that fairness 
question at the heart of capitalist societies um, that you have to that we have to allow freedom for people to pursue opportunities for their children and i think that's right but that comes up against balancing the need to ensure that those from disadvantaged backgrounds have a fair chance as well and I think we've we've kind of uh, tipped over that fairness. Well, really have have moved to an unfair society. Personally, I don't think you can practically solve that by abolishing uh, private schools um, or grammars. And I, I suspect they're here to stay. And I could say many things about what I think they should be doing in terms of contributing to social mobility. Um, but one thing I would say on that debate, it's a very obviously contentious debate, is that some of the my thinking around universities and how they need to improve their access could actually address some of those bigger issues in some in some in some ways so at the moment universities have these incredibly uh, ambitious targets to uh, diversify their student intakes if they do that then young people will have to come through from from state schools to, to meet those targets so so uh, it's one way of me sort of addressing this contentious question but yeah um that that's what that that would be my response Thanks. And I'm just looking at the clock. I think we've got time for one more question. So um, uh, it's quite a long one. So I'll try and break it down for you. Um, okay, at age 16, many young people are funneled into post 16 options that can be significant determinants of later life options and choices. However, at the same age, the only show in town is GCSEs. What else should be happening at this point in time? so that young people are given the greatest opportunities for future social mobility. So I think this comes back to my vocational point. Um, I think it's a scandal that we have a system that fails 40% of children every year. Um, that, that's what happens with GCSEs in English and maths. I think that's deeply damaging to generations of children. It's the wrong system. I would have options. I, I would actually, I've seen other countries and would have to think about carefully how we did this, but I would have a, a sort of basic school certificate that everyone was expected to pass. That would be functional skills. It wouldn't be the sort of maths or English were expected in, 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 in the higher grades at GCSE. I think everyone should, should be able to do that. I think that's possible given good feedback in the classroom. Um, but then I would have some sort of proper vocational options from 14. The, the counter arguments to this is always that that then becomes then the the avenue that poorer children go go to and i i think you have to address that um so so yes but i still think that would be a better system than the one that we have now which quite frankly is failing um at a high number a high proportion of our young people which takes us back to the prime minister's uh, announcement this week, really, and whether that is going to be a reality. Um, and uh, we see uh, the more vocational routes being uh, the poor relation. Is that going to change? So I guess it will watch and see, but, but clearly supporting that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, any government that's serious about this area, you would have a whole raft of policies um, that would be addressing the inequalities outside the school gates, but also helping the school system to help us as a nation uh, recover from, from this, this pandemic. Um, uh, and it, and it, it really is only schools. Often, you know, I, I showed that, that slide, the sort of Dickens slide at the end there. What, what's, what's really 
coming to me more and more is that schools are increasingly the only place for many young people because they, they can't find it elsewhere. And, and for me, that, that's an interesting debate. You know, what is the role of schools in all this? And are we resourcing them to do that properly? Um, I think is one of the key national debates that we should have. Thank you, Lee. Um, I, I just wanted to uh, let you know that we've had listeners in from Paraguay, Vietnam and Bangladesh, just to name a few. And I suppose, wow. yeah, ab absolutely fantastic and, and welcome uh, to this event. Um, we're, 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 you know, very glad to have you on the call. Um, I just wonder if there's any kind of international um, resonance for you in your most recent book, for example, and uh, given that there's so much global interest in this topic. So there, there is, I mean, you know, and, and before COVID, I, I was increasingly invited to different countries. Ev everyone is interested in this issue of social mobility because it, it also relates to notions of economic effectiveness. If you're um, helping all your population to fulfill their potential, then, then, then you know, the theory is it's better for the economy as, as a whole. So most nations now are thinking about this. Interestingly, Korea, um, they have levels of private tutoring that far outstrip even us. You know, that I think the amount of money spent on private tutoring is nearly equals the public bu budget for education, um, which is kind of interesting. I hope we don't go towards that, I have to say. Um, the, the international comparisons that, 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 that interest me from a UK perspective, the ones we talk about in the book, uh, are Australia and Canada, in, in that we argue that there are similarities in terms of culture and inequality levels, actually, not quite as unequal as, as here. Um, but what's interesting there is that, that Canada and Australia have higher levels of social mobility than we or America do. And the big question, of course, is, is why is that? Uh, then what you find is there's huge variation within each country. So which area you live in can also your chances. But I think what we found there partly one of the theories anyway is um that the less hierarchical education system so they tend to have local colleges universities schools there isn't this sort of profound hierarchy that we have in the uk and that the us has kind of inherited where you know everyone knows which school university you went to and that says something about you um i mean we get into we we get into discussions about the past divide when we get into this don't we but but certainly um, that's one of the things you notice, I think, with those more um, uh, sort of fair comparisons, if you like, internationally. I worry more generally about um, international comparisons because somewhere like Finland, for example, they are just a more equal society, right? So, you, you know, you have to think about what you're comparing in, in those international uh, comparisons. Thanks, Lee. Well, we're almost out of time. Uh, it's been fantastic, actually, and the engagement has been absolutely brilliant. I, I really wanted to ask you, because I've had a similar trajectory to you. I haven't been a bin man, mind you, but, I, you, know, I, you know, what really made the difference in one sentence? What made the difference to you in making your move and, uh, into education? One sentence and then we'll finish. It, it was people around me. It was an uncle. It was a teacher. It was other people that helped me. And I think that's important because, um, you know, we need to be a more collective, inclusive society. And my worry is that we become an individualistic, selfish society. 
Thanks, Lee. And I mean, similarly, we're back to this kind of human connection, interaction, feedback, all of those things that make a difference. So brilliant. We are out of time. I, I want to thank you warmly, Lee, for this brilliant evening. It's been fantastic. And we hope you'll come back and in person, perhaps we can all meet at the IOE in the future. It'd be great to have you there. But we have managed to engage with a huge audience through this online uh, event. So thank you to everybody who's been on the call. Please continue the, the discussion uh, through social media. And uh, thanks very much to the team who've helped us to put this on. So I wish you a, a good night and um, enjoy your evening, everybody. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast from the UCL Institute of Education, University College London. 